Welcome back to Minds Matter, everyone. Um, as usual, you're hearing me, Ava. I'm in the studio at UFA, and we've got Beth on Zoom coming in from Melbourne. Hey, guys. Does that sound different? Because <laughs> Beth has a mic now. It's very a exciting. A brand new mic. So it'll sound a little crisper. I think you sound great. I'm, I'm curious to see whether people have comments about the sound. Um, so today we're talking about um, quite a hot topic, I would say, something that has yeah. really grown in popularity in the last really 20 years. Um, so today we're going to be talking about mindfulness and meditation and what it can do for us and what maybe it has been overhyped to be able to do. Um, so yeah. in the last 20 years, um, there's been around 10,000 studies that have looked at meditation and mindfulness. And before 2000, there were only 39 in total. So that kind of shows how fashionable it's gotten. And you yourself have probably heard a lot about mindfulness and have had people tell you to do it, or maybe you practice it yourself. Um, so we're going to get into that today. Um, so we'll start off with uh, one of the big issues is like, what is mindfulness? Because um, yeah. we hear it a lot to describe a lot of things. So I have it short definition that I reckon is pretty good and this was from a group at Brown and they define mindfulness is often defined as the ability to attend in a non-judgmental way to one's own physical and mental processes during ordinary everyday tasks. Yeah. I reckon that's pretty, I mean, it's very broad, but yeah, clear. that's pretty much what it covers. Um, and we're going to get into the fact that um, this definition sometimes is also kind of an issue in how different studies actually look at this. Um, but even with this study, or even with this definition, even if you remember it perfectly, so you remember exactly what Beth said, um, that would be <laughs> you remembering this in a memory system that psychologists call declarative memory. So that's memory for facts and um, memory for things that really happen that you can recall in kind of a very conscious way. But yeah. um, just knowing that it's paying attention to things in your everyday life and being more present, that's not going to actually allow you to <laughs> do this. And that's kind of why also mindfulness is often referred to a mindfulness practice because it's a practice that you have yeah. to do. And that's actually a different memory system that psychologists call procedural memory. So that's like riding a bike or playing the piano. So things that are more kind of like muscle memory. So to yeah. be able to do this, you really do have to practice. Um, so this is also based on this idea in neuroscience that's um, that's kind of, what's the word? Coined, that's the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. As um, neurons that fire together, wire together. So this refers to the fact that the connections between different cells in the brain um, that transmit messages, they get stronger the more they work together. So again, kind of like flexing a muscle. And so practicing meditation allows you to kind of flex that mindfulness muscle and kind of a goal of doing these practices is that, as Beth said, you're able to bring mindfulness to other aspects of your regular life. So kind of like lifting weights uh, in the gym allows you to. And I feel like with the practicing, if you think about like there's people who can sit and meditate for an hour, two hours, but like that's definitely not something that everyone who gets to that stage explains like the, the you know the program the process it took like it was a long time for them to get to get to that that place it's not as simple sadly as just 
sitting down without your phone for two hours. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to demonstrate how how difficult this might be or how easy it is, depending, um, we're going to actually play a small around one minute meditation for you guys. So I invite you to try it out with us. Um, we're going to be doing it. And um, this meditation is something that I pulled from a TED talk by Joe Pang, who's a psychotherapist in uh, the States. Um, so just just try it out and we'll come back to you soon. <laughs> And so let's try out this practice. And to start, I'll just ask that you close your eyes. And this just helps bring attention inward. And just feel what it feels like to be in this body, in this space, and in this moment. And bringing your attention to your breathing in this body following it as you breathe in and breathe out and breathing in again and breathe out the breath is always present and a reliable place to come back to just continuing to follow your breathing And you might notice thoughts like to take your attention away. And so all you have to do when you notice that happens is observe where your mind went and then come back to your breath. Learning how to come home to who you are. And now taking one more mindful breath. opening your eyes all right so how how's everyone feel? feeling <laughs> <laughs> yeah so actually reflect kind of on how that that felt for you and um one thing that I really liked about um that particular one minute meditation was that within that one minute um he does say you know where if your thoughts are drifting away bring them back and it's really kind of disturbing how within 10 seconds your mind is gone you're trying to focus on your breath but you're yeah. you're it's impossible to do it yeah. <laughs> especially for me I have a really difficult time doing this Beth, uh, Beth I have so we actually have a meditation a shared meditation story yes. when we were together in Amsterdam so me Ava and Guillaume went to this Guillaume is yoga. my boyfriend if oh, yeah. people don't know who Guillaume is <laughs> everyone knows again and this um yin yoga is is um it's a form of mindfulness because you're in like these postures for a really long time and it's focusing in on your breath and we do this class and you know I'm like going to yoga all the time and I meditate and I love it and so I was I started to go with Guillaume and he was like getting into it and then we bring Ava along to this yin meditation and we get out of the meditation. Me and Gam are crying. Was Gam crying too? Or was it just he me? Cried. He said that he cried. We because we were like so moved by how like how powerful it was. And Ava was just like, "Get me out of here! I hate this." Yeah, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was actually so shocked because I I was sitting there, you know, in whatever crouch or like holding my legs on the floor for like five minutes, and 
I was just like, what the hell am I doing? This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm so hungry. Um, <laughs> and I really, I could not fathom that you were not having the same experience because I was like, this is so silly. And then both of you were like, yeah, it was amazing. I cried. I feel so good. I w-. And I was so shocked because I didn't have that experience at all. And I remember Beth said to me, like, you need to do that more. If you, if you yeah. felt like that, you need to do that more. And it's definitely true. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are so drawn to mindfulness and meditation and this kind of stuff is because our – our minds are always going a hundred all the time, especially you're like, where's my phone? I want to check my phone. I definitely have a bit of that problem. Um, And I have a lot of tabs open on my computer all the time. I'm switching between tabs. Um, So I think there is this, the one of the reasons that this industry, because it is a billion dollar industry at this point um, has really exploded is because there is a need for it. There is this kind of deficit that we've created um, and mindfulness does allow you to get out of those types of attention deficits. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let us know how you felt about that felt? one minute. Um, comment on our Instagram. <laughs> um, but so mindfulness does actually have some interesting outcomes and, and things that studies have shown that it can work for, um, including some some actual bodily functions. Yeah, so... I guess this, so, yeah, I guess we all know overall that mindfulness, you know, we have the relaxation, those kind of things. Like we experience that, we understand that. But some of the more interesting studies actually look about what's um, happening more, yeah, in terms of like gene expression, those kind of things. And that's where stuff gets interesting because I think also in a lot of, um, even the in our podcast when we talk about research and it's like oh you know people felt this way or these things or this self-reported feelings but if you can actually show a change in gene expression that is um yeah pretty significant so there was this study done in harvard and um it was well okay so like always there were many issues with this study (laughs) so they had no control group which uh, not great common harvard (laughs) um but they had patients with hypertension and they had to uh, meditate for eight weeks. So, and they had to meditate every day for eight weeks. So it was, um, they were guided through like a, this routine and they had um, breathing exercises, a body scan, a, a mantra, rep- like repetition and another just general um, meditation. And it was, so it was 20 min- minutes each day for eight weeks. And once a week they would go back into the lab to, you know, get a bit more trained and make sure they're on the right and um, after this they found that the blood pressure of all participants lowered so that's yeah but then um one of the more interesting things was so what they did was they looked at um the gene expression of different cells that we have and so in terms of the gene like certain cell um, pathways in the body um different at different stages, they'll be upregulated or downregulated. So that means if they're upregulated, you'll get more of those. And if it's downregulated, you'll get less. And they looked at, um, so there's TNF, which is tumor, I can never say these words. You got this. (laughs) Beth is published in Cell, by the way. So she's (laughs) modest, but she can can say this. Like, you've got this. If I can do it, you can do it too. (laughs) 
So basically that's the, um, that regulates the allergy pathway. So if you've ever had like hay fever, any of those things, like TNF is going off, like that's going crazy. Um, and they found that with all these patients, that was downregulated. So they had um, less of that, so they had less of the immune response. And they also found that with NF, which is another one of these kind of things that um, activates B cells, which also is involved in the inflammation pathway. And because hypertension, um, just high blood pressure, those kind of things, they're associated with more inflammation. So not only did they find that these were, um, yeah, there, were, there was less of this, they found it was like um, upregulated this glucocorticoid <laughs> receptor signaling pathway that um, if you have more of that, you have anti-inflammation. So everyone who went through this eight-week meditation, they found that change in the gene expression. So that clinically is like a, a very, it is a significant finding because it's not just, oh, the blood pressure went down because that, you know, it's like, well, these pathways that are involved in, in hypertension were, were changed without any, any like, you know, drugs or anything. So that, I, it's, it's pretty cool, but yeah you know, didn't have a control group. So. so the idea is that mindfulness allowed for this change in gene expression, which is then what reduced the blood pressure. Wow. Yeah, which, and, and again, then like, we don't know how it did it, but um, yeah, that's what, that's what they're saying, which is, yeah, I mean, it, that, that is, and I mean, even without a control group and all those things, like there's obviously still something there, you know, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we can kind of get into this now about this idea of, like, a lot of these studies not being great, and one of the criticisms yeah. is this idea that um, most studies actually don't have an active control, which would be if people were looking at um, an outcome like anxiety would be something like cognitive behavioral therapy instead of mindfulness, and cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy is more kind of like um, psychotherapy where you're talking to a um, therapist who then gives you kind of activities to do so that you can notice um, your negative thought patterns and then change them at the source in a sense. So that would be an act of control. Um, and I guess the idea is that you want to be comparing mindfulness to other things that already work. But I kind of also feel like, of course, it's good to have those things to compare those things, but you also do kind of want to compare mindfulness to just carrying on because I feel like right. in a way it's easier I don't know even easier than going to a therapist maybe and getting your cognitive behavioral therapy and your little activities to do um right. I don't know so like I definitely understand the criticism but at the same time I don't think that studies that don't have an active control are necessarily useless because there was one review that looked at all of these I think 9,000 studies and they kind of concluded that only 14 I think um, mm -hmm. were really useful in terms of looking at how um, mindfulness affected cognition because they had these active controls and this eight-week right. like Beth mentioned eight-week meditation course um, so yeah that's something to look out for but also I think a criticism about the criticism in a way, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm also not really in clinical research. So I think Beth knows more about these types of controls. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I thought this, yeah. Well, also another, there was another paper and this is from the same group at Brown that 
was um, coming up. It's more on like the, I don't know if you'd say philosophy, I guess more like psychology, less biology side on like why this could be happening. And like, yes, we see the change in gene expression, but you know, what were the other behaviors that the mindfulness created? So are you getting lower blood pressure because you've started to develop like this ability of self-reflection? So you like don't have that cigarette or you have the ability to control that or, or you, you know, you aren't going to get as angry in that moment that you did last yeah. time that, you know, increased all this like inflammation. So it's also those things. But I think that's also very cool that, um, you know, those thought patterns that we can control and they can have these effects. So they did find that it was also kind of mediated by how much you were able to then control impulses in a way. Not in this study. This was more, this was another just overall, like, why is mindfulness help, helpful with, okay. like, these kind of, you know, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disorder kind of things. Okay. And it's like, because they, when you do these studies also, like, they're not asked, they're not looking. So if you're running a study like this, it's, like, very biology focused. They're not looking so much into all, like, the self-reflection behavioral patterns as much as you would if you were running, like, a psychology study because it's just not what you what you're thinking about. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There are always so many factors, especially with things yeah. like this. Like, yeah, it's very much like the the nature episode. If if you remember that, that was episode two. <laughs> um, where it was just, there's so much happening and it's hard to say what the mechanisms are, but we know that it works. Um, yeah. But I think that definitely, I mean, I think these, these kinds of bodily function, um, gene expression things, like, those sound so wild and there just seem to be so many steps in terms of actually explaining the mechanisms that are going on there. Um, But I think the issue that, or the outcome that you bring up of the fact that you're able to control, um, you're kind of able to look back and think about what you're doing as opposed to just continuing to do it when you're mindful, that that really is an outcome that, um, that has been, I would say proven in research. So like, especially for, um, these kinds of quote maladaptive behaviors, like, like you mentioned anger, like people getting really angry about stuff. Um, what mindfulness allows you to do in some, the way that some researchers kind of conceptualize it is that it drives a wedge between um, when you're actually sent your actual sensory awareness of what's happening. And then, which usually is more unconscious. And then the evaluation that you then have of what just happened, that's usually the conscious part. And mindfulness kind of gets yeah. in between so that you can just experience what's happening and not, you know, continue to create that cycle of then conceptualizing what it means for you. So just, you know, being in the moment, yeah. as they say. Um, and <laughs> that, <laughs> you can tell that I'm not a mindful person. Um, as usual, I feel like I'm always the skeptic in this in this in this duo. Um, I'm like, yeah, it's all great. Yeah. But um, no, but I, I think it's great. I would love to be able to do all of this stuff. Um, but I think really there, the outcomes for um, clinically, I think the outcomes that have really been proven are helping anxiety, helping um, sadness, which I, I'm, I'm always a bit skeptical of saying that this will like really help with your depression if you are depressed because it's more kind of about I would say preventing relapse and um yeah Yeah. allowing yourself to be conscious of those things but when you're already you know in a situation where 
you have these kinds of vicious cycles that are going on, it's it's very hard to get out of that. And like meditating for 30 minutes a day isn't going to get you out of that, um, as some people claim. No, I, I think say. it's more, yeah, I think if it's more seen as like a tool rather than like a, a cure or a fix or a, or these kind of things, like it's an assistance. So I think that's also important. And I'm like, obviously, I'm really into the whole <laughs> mindfulness thing and do a lot of yoga and it helps me a lot. But I'm definitely not someone who's like, well, there's like, what's the saying? Like, um, meditate, don't medicate. Like, I'm not about that oh. because it's like we still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You've not heard of that, Ava. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think people have probably very strong feelings about this kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, like, the science does not show that you can meditate and not medicate and cure your depression that's that's not where the science is at like perhaps people have you know anecdotal stories but um no (laughs) um but I mean I think also one of the interesting things about meditation is also that it does help with deficits and it helps with degradation but if you're already doing great so if you're doing um an attention task so that's looking at sustained attention which you know as as that um one minute meditation showed um that's kind of what meditation and mindfulness is about just like focusing on what's happening um if people are already really great at a certain task at an attention-based task and they don't have a deficit then you're you know mindfulness isn't going to help you be like a superhero and like be aware of everything um so it really does help with deficits and it also helps with um degradation so they've found that people who meditate who then are older are just aging because if you're above 20 if you're listening to this and you're older than 20 your brain is shrinking it's atrophying um by the way um so that's something that we can't really avoid but mindfulness does slow down that process and allows like the gray matter the the cortex so the outside of the brain um those cells are going to get are going to degrade less quickly if you're doing mindfulness specifically in the regions that help you pay attention to things so that's kind of good to know um yeah and i think that's like kind of a big i was actually quite surprised because i read this study from ucla ucla and it's like they had 25 active um people meditators and then 22 controls so people who just didn't meditate at all and they found an increase in gray matter in the hippocampus which is all memory the inferior temporal gyrus which is vision and then the orbitofrontal cortex which and that's like right at the front of your brain above the eyes and that can that like helps control emotion and memory and i thought that was kind of a big i don't that's funny that you I was like really surprised by that. I thought that's that's kind of crazy. I think also, you know, with like when because when we talk about the results of one study, like right. of course that points in a direction, but um, you kind of have to take into account everything that's happening. And there's also been like you know criticisms about um, the way that this research was carried out. I don't know the details of that particular study, um, and I think there is evidence that these things can happen. So there is, but. Also, another issue that we've talked about several times on this podcast is saying that um, and someone who's meditated for eight weeks or an expert meditator has a thicker hippocampus, thicker hippocampus, um, 
we don't actually know what that means. So if you can't pair that with right. a behavioral outcome, like saying, yeah, their memory is way better, then we're not totally sure like what, what, how it is actually significant towards someone's actual life. For me, I think those things are important. Also, what was interesting in this study is like the overall brain volume was the same between the controls and the um, people who meditated. So it was like just these regions. So it, yeah, in terms of like the whole, because the whole, the whole volume of the brain, it was the same. It was just like these certain areas. But that could also imply that you're kind of losing something, you know, if you're, you're doing like something there. You're taking over. But I think that's actually another interesting thing about this research on mindfulness is that I think there is this kind of narrative um, that I think you encounter quite a lot when you're looking at this research where it's like you want to get to the point where you're able to just focus on everything or focus on the present moment and not allow your mind to wander and to be doing other things, which is, you know, what we had in, in again, in that, that one minute meditation of like call your mind back. Um but mind wandering is really important. Like mind wandering yeah, allows us to be creative that like this creative, idea of yeah. the kind of default mode network in the brain is this network that happens when we're at rest. And when you're at rest, you're always going to be thinking about a bunch of other things. And this allows you to be creative, but it also allows you to set goals and figure out what's important. And we need to be able to do those things. And there's kind of this narrative that, you know, like a nirvana state or whatever, like transcendence, this is when your default mode network is off and you reach this kind of state of pure consciousness where you're just like a blank slate. I've never experienced it, so maybe I'm saying everything completely <laughs> wrong. Um, but I think there's this idea of like almost wanting to get rid of the default mode network and get rid of mind wandering, but that's not what you want. Um, and I feel no, like I these, that. those, that idea, I mean, this is, so much extrapolation but that idea of um certain brain regions you know getting bigger thicker yeah, <laughs> when yeah, yeah. you're meditating but then your overall brain volume being the same it seems like you lose something um but also research shows i want to say that um this isn't necessarily what happens so if you're an expert meditator it's not that you're you can't have mind wandering it's just that you're able to more flexibly control your attention so that's something important to keep in mind. But I also yeah, yeah. think... Yeah, you don't stop mind wandering. Yeah. But it's also something that I think, you know, if, if you're reading this literature and you want to get to that point of like, oh, I want, I, you know, I just, I just want to be present in the moment all the time. Like, that's really, I would say, not, not a great goal. So, yeah. you know, be critical of like... Because I, I think mindfulness is something that a lot of people kind of get into um, and be critical about those kinds of narratives. Yeah. Um, and just because I don't, so mind wandering basically is daydreaming. Just so Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's basically if I'm sitting at my desk and I'm focusing on something, but I, my mind goes off and you're not really aware of where it's going so much. Would you? Yeah, so that's what, so obviously everyone experiences that. And recently there's been also more research into mind wandering and like what that does and all those things. So kind of the opposite of mindfulness. Yeah, and mind wandering has been shown to be pretty good for you but the issue obviously is that we don't we want to be able to control when our minds are wandering so like you know if you're trying to read a book and then you realize that you read five pages but you have absolutely no idea what you were reading that's not so good that's not great um creative <laughs> yeah creative um so yeah I think that's that's interesting in terms of like figuring out what kind of 
goals you have when you're actually doing when you're trying to embark on you know whatever a mindfulness journey or something <laughs> that you don't want to become just like you know a, yet. or maybe you do want to become a monk I don't know your story but you know um but I think something else that I found really interesting about this research that has to do with this idea of mind wandering um as I've said sometimes in this podcast I strongly believe that you know, to be a person, the thing that makes us a person is that we're able to mind wander in the sense of like thinking about you in the past, thinking about you in the future and like simulate yourself in these alternate realities and really create a narrative about your own life and who you are. And so an interesting thing that came up um, in these studies is that they actually used mindfulness to test this idea of different selves. So um, there are... I mean, I'm sure there are more, but there are there are two kind of main selves that sometimes come up in, I guess, philosophy and, and psychology. So the first is the narrative self. So the narrative self is um, who you think you are, like the types of meaning that you ascribe to your daily activities, things like that, and um, the story that you tell about your life. So this idea of the narrative. Yeah. And then there's also an experiential self, which is just like, when you're feeling something in your finger, like that's an experiential um, moment where you're not actually going back to the idea of um, that sensory experience versus the judgment and valuation. You're not judging what's happening. You're just not emotional or anything. It's just like, yeah, exactly. Whatever. Okay. So um, there are these two types of selves and obviously the narrative self is what creates, you know, the story of who you are. Um, And so they did a study that was looking at, um, trying to kind of tease apart these two selves and see how they interact and like even whether they exist like in the brain, whether there are neural correlates of this. So Mm -hmm. participants in the study were recruited to be in, again, this eight-week mindfulness training workshop. And so participants here either got the training or they were assigned to like a waitlist condition, so they weren't actually doing it. So again, here there isn't um, an active control if you're keeping track of those things. Um, And then the task that they did was that there was a positive and negative trait word stimulus that was presented to them while they were in the MRI. So while their brain was getting scanned Um, and there were two conditions. So there was an experience focus condition where um, participants were instructed to engage in present centered self-reference, sensing what's occurring, um, feeling body states without a purpose or goal, um, except for noticing what how things are one moment to the next. So there was that first experience focus condition. Then there was this narrative focus condition where participants were asked to judge what was occurring and try to figure out what that trait that they were seeing meant to themselves and how it described them or whether it described them. So in the participants who did this eight-week training, um, in the experiential framework, they saw reductions in an area of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex. So actually that's the orbitofrontal cortex that um, Beth mentioned. Um, and, um, so they saw a reduction there, which is in this area that you're kind of telling yourself stories. So this area where you're narrating yourself, um, and they saw an increased engagement in, um, the right lateralized network. So that means like the right side of the brain, um, which was the right front side of the brain, as well as areas in the, the brain that are more connected to how you're feeling in the moment. So more like, um, connected to the visceral sensations. Um, So that was like the somatosensory cortex and the insula. 
And um, analyses looking at the connectivity between different regions found that the right insula and the MPFC, so these are the regions, the regions that are connected, um, the insula, sorry, is the region that is connected, Beth will, Beth will summarize this after, the regions that are connected <laughs> um, to uh, your bodily experience and the regions that are connected to your narrative experience, those were very coupled together in the people that didn't do the mindfulness training, but they were uncoupled in the people who did. So this kind of suggests okay. that for most of us, our experiential and conceptual selves are really happen like they're they're operating tightly together. But then when you do this mindfulness training, you're you're able to decouple your experiential self and your narrative self from your narrative. Yeah. Okay. And so when they were scanning people, when you were doing like the body, just focusing on that, did the, it was different what was happening in the brain was different to when you were focusing on like your narrative. Is that right? Yeah. So the people who were, um, who did the mindfulness training when they were doing the experiential self condition, yeah. they were kind of able to turn off that narrative part more so than the people who had never done the mindfulness training. So for them, those two regions were, or those regions of the brain um, and those selves were operating kind of just together in this default way. Um, so the idea is like the conceptual self is kind of this filter that allows you to take in everything as it's occurring, but immediately um, kind of apply it to your life um, yep. and judge things. Whereas this can kind of actually through mindfulness be detached from an experiential self. So in mindfulness, you're training yourself to yeah, kind of take those selves apart. And I think that this study is just a very cool demonstration of how neuroscience can actually have certain implications on like theories of the self and yeah, whether these things exist self. and whether yeah. they're different. Um, so yeah, I think that's something really interesting about what mindfulness can do in terms of, in terms of what it's really doing in the brain and also what it can bring you, because it does mean that it's, it's activating these areas that are really important for bodily sensation and are important for, you know, sensing what's going on as opposed to creating yeah. that story for yourself. Um, so I, I really like that study. That's one of my favorite studies. You know, that's really cool. Who did that? Um, it was actually, I didn't mention it, but it was a bunch of researchers in Toronto. Um, so I think there Ah, were a couple. Was it also like a philosophy group? I think there were, there were quite a lot of authors, but some of them were at U of T and other, others were at Baycrest, which is a hospital and others were at CAMH, which is the, um, center for addiction and mental health. So it was okay. quite a big effort. But I think it was really interesting because they kind of brought in some of these more philosophical ideas. Um, yeah, no, that's super cool. I wonder how long after, I wonder how long this lasts. So if you do this for eight weeks and you see this like uncoupling of the self, it sounds so intense. Um, like how long are you uncoupled for? <laughs> like, you know, your two selves. Like, And I don't know, also like is there, um, yeah, is, is, can this be negative? Yeah. So that's, yeah, I think one thing with that is that um, first, I think the people who were, who did the mindfulness training, they were still able to have an experiential self. Um, (laughs) So like, you know, in the other condition, yeah, they were fine. Um, But this is a really interesting point that, you know, mindfulness is often presented as this amazing thing and whatever, but something like realizing that 
your narrative self and who you see yourself as can be completely detached from who you are. And maybe, you know, as a lot of researchers argue, like the self doesn't really exist because, you know, where is the self? What are, what is that? Um, and if you really think <laughs> about it, you can kind of spin out. And no, that's, I can't think about it too much. <laughs> that's what meditation does though. And so yeah. that's another thing that comes up is that there are, there are problems with mindfulness and there might be kind of a dark side to meditate yeah so let's get so there's a there's this real actually if you guys are going to read anything i would really recommend reading this it's called mind hype and it's a um this like kind of review on like you know all this mindfulness research and it's the first author is a guy at melbourne uni but it's got like people from all over the world like the people from nyu people from harvard it's like really um yeah pretty impressive but basically so they're mindfulness or like, you know, researchers, but they're just being um, critical of like how the research is at the moment. And one of the issues that they speak about, which I thought was really interesting, is when they're doing these mindfulness studies, if someone has like a, um, a bad response, so like mindfulness can give people panic attacks, it can like, um, you can feel a bit depressed after like all of these things because you are grappling with these, with these questions. It's not usually well reported on and then no one really looks into why that happens. So if you were doing a, um, if you were, for example, if you were testing an antidepressant and there were like these side effects, or for example, like with all the COVID vaccines, like we always hear about these side effects and like that's taken, of course, so seriously. It's like, oh, trials being halted, all these things. Um, you know, that, that needs to be investigated, whereas there's this tendency in mindfulness research when people have these, like, negative experiences, it's not really looked into. And then when they looked through, like, all the studies and how many people were having negative experiences, I mean, even if one person does, it means something, you know, and, like, that needs to be looked at and it's not. And then when it's been, you know, this, like, thing that everyone's like oh it fixes everything it does this it does that like we also need to know oh but you can feel this way or that can happen like and there's different you know mental health is you know such a difficult thing and people you know a minefield (laughs) but there needs to you know you can't um I think it needs to be spoken about more because if you are trying to go on this like mindfulness trend and you have a this bad experience and like you but like everyone who's doing it is like happy and laughing. Like you're going to feel more isolated and that's, that's a problem. And I think, um, and, it, and like that, this isn't to say that it's not amazing and wonderful and can help so many people like with any, you know, drug or medication, but it's like, we need to be like, for example, antidepressants, antidepressants don't work for everyone, but like we accept that. Whereas mindfulness hasn't really, hasn't really gotten to that stage yet. Yeah, I think it's also this, again, this theme that comes up in our podcast a lot, um, this idea that, you know, it's natural and it's just Mm. you sitting there and thinking about your own thoughts. So that, you know, can't be bad in a way. Um, And so there's kind of this resistance to saying that it has negative side effects because, you know, it has all of these, it ticks all these boxes, like being natural and, and, you know, being free I don't know um but yeah so one of one of the researchers I would say from what I've seen in the literature the the kind of main researcher who does um work on the dark side of meditation um her name is Willow B. Britton and um 
you know, on the off chance that the person listening to this is a serious meditator and has had negative experiences, like Beth said, you don't want to be, you know, feeling alone and it's completely normal. And this researcher actually has an entire website where she helps people cope with these negative side effects. Um, it's called cheetahhouse.org. So we'll, you can look that up, but we'll also link it um, in our materials on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Check it out. Um, and yeah, so it's actually really crazy to, to look at that site because she has so many symptoms listed of um, the problems that people have when they do meditate. And this can be, you know, up to like psychoses. This is like something that happens. Um, And as a disclaimer, these are things that happen more. Definitely these negative side effects happen a lot more for people who have been meditating a long time. So people who are serious and also these like more intense things. Um, Mm -hmm. These also happen more if you're on like a 10 day retreat or maybe even like a three day retreat. Um, and most of the teachers that you would be encountering would be able to help you cope with this. And, um, actually I watched an interview with, um, Willoughby Britton and it was really interesting because she, you know, told the story that, you know, Beth said essentially of the fact that people aren't reporting these effects where the first time she realized that this was actually happening was that she ran a study on, um, insomnia people who are meditating and she found that people who are meditating were having worse insomnia and were having an even harder time falling asleep. And she kind of swept that under the rug and was like, I'm not going to publish it. I don't know what this is. And then she ended up talking to someone who was leading these types of 10 day retreats. And they were like, yeah, that happens all the time. Like there are really difficult things that happen all the time to people who are on these retreats and people who meditate. Like um, this is an issue And then she started doing more research into it. And then she has this like huge paper of 59 symptoms. Um, But um, yeah, so I think also something interesting that this research brings up is the fact that there are so many different types of meditations as well. And I think the ones that, you know, we're most familiar with are these ones of like um, breathing and anchoring the breath. But um, so that's the one that we kind of showed you. But um, there are so many other types, like I think probably the most popular ones are like these, um, these, I don't know what they're exactly called, these open consciousness kind of things where you're just trying to just see where your mind goes and taking things in as they come. And like go, go with it, yeah. Yeah, and so this kind of um, meditation, so the ones that are um, more open and just kind of like do whatever, um, just figure out what your mind is doing, these have been shown to be worse for trauma patients obviously because if you're in that situation and you're not anchored on something, then your trauma is going to be intrusive and come into your thoughts. And that can be really disturbing. Um, But they also did um, an interesting study where they had different people come in again for an eight week training and they had them um, focus on different anchors. So I think there were around five anchors total. So it was either a breath anchor in the nose, the chest or the stomach or an anchor in the feet or the hands And they found that people um, who had traumas, they ended up choosing um, the nose anchor, so the breath in the nose or the or the hands or the feet. And they reported that, you know, have focusing on the breath in the chest or the breath in the stomach that gave them panic attacks because, you know, you're if you're focusing on that, that's where your trauma is held. So that's also something really important to keep in mind is that, like, if you're having issues with things, you really need to be. If, if it's something that you want to do, you 
need to experiment and it's completely normal if you're having problems yeah, yeah, with yeah. one type of meditation. Um, and there can be these quite disturbing outcomes. Um, so you're not alone in those things. This is really not where, when we pick mindfulness, this is really not where I thought it would go. But um, yeah. <laughs> so. But I think it's, it's, those things are really interesting to keep in mind and really interesting to know. Yeah. And one thing also that, um, that this researcher brings up is the fact that with a lot of these apps, because she did say that um, with this Cheetah House organization that she has that helps people deal with these negative side effects, a lot of the people are coming in from apps. Um, mm. And one of the issues she thinks is like a mismatch between the cultures because mindfulness, you know, we haven't really touched on this, but um, mindfulness obviously is drawn from all of these like Eastern traditions and really rich yeah. religious backgrounds a lot of the times. And there's a whole slew of issues with appropriation and things like that, which this episode we won't get into. Um, <laughs> but one problem is like, if we're going to focus on like these Western people who are, who are trying to get into mindfulness is that yeah. you're promised kind of a secular experience so you're promised like this is going to help with your anxiety this is going to help with you not you know picking up your phone all the time and then yeah. you go into these meditations which you know and I've I've only used one of the apps like I've used the app um with Sam Harris which is yeah. which is fine but in a lot of his meditations you know he he says like look for the observer like look for you in your head you're not actually in your head, you know, where are you actually, where is your consciousness, your consciousness is just with everything ah. else, yeah. yeah, and then, you know, people can have these intense depersonalizations and realizations that, like, wait, myself doesn't exist, like, where am I, I'm not you in my know, body, yeah. and then when they go to someone or they go to the app people and are like, hey, I'm not okay, um, this yeah. isn't normal, like, what's going on? Because that's not a normal thing to happen in our society where it's really important to have a strong some sense of self and individuality. Right. Then, And they're, they're going into this thinking that this is in the framework of their normal, you know, yeah. understanding of society. And then these app people tell them, like, that's great, you had an insight. That's great. And you're like, <gasps> no. Yeah. And then you're like, wait, um, I didn't sign up for this. Oh, no. <laughs> and in another co context, you know, if, if maybe if you're a monk or you're really seriously trying to get into these these more ancient traditions or religions, then you're then you're ready to take that as like, yeah, this is an insight. Good. Good for me. Um, this is a path on my journey, but like a lot of these people did not sign up for that path. And nine to five, no, they, they, yeah. they can't get on that path. Yeah. So this researcher, um, Willoughby Britton, she argues that there's actually kind of a problem of informed consent because you're signing up for something that, yeah, and you're right. you're not receiving because then you know you're just trying to try to be off your phone or like be present with your kids <laughs> more, and then you're like, right oh, I actually now. don't exist. <laughs> That's not what I signed up. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, Jay. Because another thing is, um, is like the commodity of mindfulness, mm -hmm. which is a massive problem, um, obviously, like with these apps, but also this paper, the one from the guy from Melbourne was saying like, and then like companies like Google's like take a study, like for example, that first one that we spoke about, the one that was actually like, you know, interesting, all of these things, they take 
that. And so, but in this study, people did 20 minutes a day for eight weeks. But then Google, like, hmm, well, we'll give them like one minute to like breathe at work during the day. And all of a sudden, like, Google's now a mindfulness workplace. And it's like that kind of stuff is, um, I mean, that's, yeah, there's a big issue with, with that happening as well. Like, people, like, companies taking it over and using it for well being, but not, it's not because they're not implementing it in a way that it should be. Um, and then this paper discusses like the more that we feed into like this kind of like hyphen research um, that that will get worse. And that's that's a big ethical question you, you have to have to think about too. Like, yeah, because I mean, Google and like those companies, they do say that and they do give you like three minutes to sit and breathe with your eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I think that's also, you know, one of the things about why we, we don't talk about the kind of negative side effects is that, you know, just sitting and breathing seems quite innocuous. Um, but at the same time, you're promised all these very profound effects. And, you know, you know, there's like nothing. What's the physics word? Like nothing is made or created. Like everything just changes. And there's got to be a give and take. So like something's might get taken from you. Like <laughs> you might not be okay. Um, but also, like, there are resources to deal with these things, and these things do happen more so if you are, you know, really deep into meditation. Um, and, yeah, the commodification of meditation is kind of, it's obviously counterintuitive and doesn't make sense, but that's just how our world works. So Yeah, and another interesting thing, so for the, our non-science, research listeners um, a whole thing about what gets researched on is through grants and funding so that's why there's so much money in Alzheimer's research because like people put money into that and, like so that's so important about where people want to put their money so at the moment there's a lot of money going into mindfulness research and it's like if you put a grant and you're going to do an MRI study with mindfulness like that's really cool at the moment but if you do that too much people will get like tired of it. Like it's like what the buzz dies down. And then like in 10 years time, there might not be any money in mindfulness research. And we won't actually be able to get to see, you know, investigate these really interesting and effects that we're, we're starting to see and starting to understand, but to really do good research, that needs to be like a slow, carefully measured, all these things pro process and not just having like these, these flashy, studies and there's a worry that if we just keep going like this then you know it, we won't be talking about mindfulness and then we won't really know what and you won't be able to get a grant for it because you know everyone will be over it so I think that that's also um a, a good thing to think about but yeah for scientists it's like the balance of like doing something that you'll actually get a grant for and doing something that's good I don't that's it yeah yeah, as as future maybe scientists, we often hear follow the money. So just by the way, <laughs> if you're not in science, like that's something that we do here. Um, but that's that's a super important point. Also, is that you know we've talked about the fact that there's like been this boom in mindfulness and there's you know ten thousand studies, but we actually really don't know that much. Um, and also because lots of people do it and lots of people have their own kinds of experiences with it, it kind of feels like everyone sort of understands it but actually we don't and 
yeah, this idea of the commodification of it, it really also, you know, the apps are kind of um, gearing us towards understandings of some specific types of mindfulness that are obviously cherry picked from like ancient traditions and things that have existed for a very long time. Um, And there is a lot more out there than these apps. So something good to look at if, you know, you you want to start and you're doing mindfulness and things like that is to, you know, figure out a path that you want to go on, something that you want to try, but also modify where you need to. And I think also something good to do that um, Dr. Britton mentions is that you should be like really trying to figure out what you want out of something. So you know, if you want this outcome, if something bad is happening, don't take that as like, okay, I'm like going further on my journey. This is hard. Like hardship doesn't necessarily mean that this is a good thing for you to do. It's good. Yeah. So she kind of recommends writing down what you want, giving yourself Uh, a month or whatever to, to try what you're doing and then go back and see whether that intention and that thing that you wanted is happening. And if it's not, then stop or change what you're doing. And, you know, actually, this is basically the same advice that we ended the pill episode with. It's just like figure <laughs> it out for yourself. Know yourself because science doesn't necessarily know enough to tell you, yeah, this this type of meditation is going to be great for you. Yeah. And we're not totally sure um, what really works for everyone. So, Well, you could start. Can I give a little hot tip? Yeah. I would say if you're feeling overwhelmed by all this terrible all these terrible side effects i've spoken about in the podcast um understandable but a way you can start is um the way i initially got into it was through yoga and like breathing and moving so you're not and if you're doing you can think about like it's you can think about exercise you can have music on and then like i built it up from that so i think if you want to do something if you do need something but you know this is all seeming a little intense and overwhelming I would recommend starting with something like that because it's a little you know it's not like going for a run or something and you can focus on your breath and the movement and yeah that's that's where I started and I would I think that that's something that you know you when you're breathing and moving you don't you're not thinking about where's myself that much so it's, yeah Yeah, and as someone who has a really difficult time with this, like, I I do do some yoga, which I don't like to call yoga. I think it's just, like, breath and movement. Um, But, yeah, I I really like that, and it has helped me. So, you know, that's my personal story. And that's also, I think, something that really connected me and Beth because we started doing yoga together in Amsterdam. Yeah, in Amsterdam. I was going to this. Yeah, you can can make friends. That is how we became friends, wasn't it? Yeah. That's a nice story wow. to end our episode. <laughs> we brought it back up. I was worried about the, the, the tone. No, I was like, it's like oh, we my like, God. We were like, darkness falls. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yoga, light. Just do, you can do some mindfulness light. Figure out if it's good for you, baby steps, you know. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, if you want to do a 10-day yeah. retreat, you know, do your thing. But, um, yeah, keep all these things in mind and... Hopefully, hopefully we helped someone today. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm feeling doubtful now. <laughs> well, all right. For all of the resources that we talked about, um, check out our website. It's mindsmatterpodcast.com. Um, everything will be there, including the literature we talked about and including 
that site by um, this this woman who does research on um, the dark side of mindfulness. So, and she has a really great site. So that's really cool to look at. Okay, I'm gonna take us out. <laughs>